tuned to Perspectives, a weekly public affairs show which airs every Sunday right here on KTEP. Good afternoon, I'm Louis Sainz, your host for Perspectives, and uh, joining us today is a good friend, Sergio Troncoso, and it's, it's, it's ironic, through social media we got connected again, and I found out that he was going to be in El Paso. First of all, welcome and thank you, and it's great to see you again. Thank you, Louis, for inviting me to your show. You grew up in Isleta, and you were telling me, I believe your parents were basically laborers. A teacher takes you under her wing, and I'll let you tell the rest of the story. Well, you know, we, we, we grew up in Isleta when Isleta was a colonia, when it really it was dirt streets, and we didn't have electricity for a while. We had kerosene lamps, and uh, we even have an outhouse in the backyard. And my parents were from Juarez and Chihuahua, and we had nothing. We built our own adobe house. And and my parents, I think one of the great immigrant values that they taught me that I have certainly tried to teach to my kids in New York City is this value of hard work and familia. You know, we would uh, come back from South Loop School or from Isleta High School, and and my parents would put us to work, uh, would put us doing construction work. My father would buy old buildings, and we would renovate them. And so the kids were the cheap labor to 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 this, um, you know, focus. And this is how slowly over many years they 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 lifted themselves up from really incredible poverty. It was hard work. It was focus. It was often doing the things that other people weren't doing in our neighborhood because and 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 frankly this is a, a story that is that important not just in Isleta but in places like New York City and i tell my kids you have to go against the culture of what's around you because often what's around you is not very good and uh or or it's you know i was proud to be from Isleta i am proud to be from Isleta but i didn't get involved with the gangs and why didn't i get involved with the gangs because my mother would keep a hawk eye you know, on me and would not allow me to, to go just play wherever I wanted to play. You know, she kept uh, me focused on hard work and how you're doing on your grades. And she was very religious, you know, muy católica. And so that was very important for her. And and they just taught us to, to work hard and, and avoid the, the, the problems in the neighborhood. And, and, and because of that, there are Mexican dichos or proverbs uh, talking about, I know one that, dime con quien te juntas y yo te digo con quien eres, or, or even in the Bible, uh, you know, about good company, corrupt. So I'll, I'll tell you one my grandmother used to tell me, el que adelante no ve, atrás se queda. He who does not look forward is left behind. It's a different culture, as you mentioned, and we're going to talk a little bit about that for uh, from one of your books in just a minute. But the fact that, uh, you know, we used to have to do chores uh, when we were kids, and uh, people today, nowadays, uh, it's a big deal maybe if the young man, young kid takes out the trash. Uh, you know, they're sitting in front of the TV, <laughs> they're becoming couch potatoes, but, you know, the hard labor and the things that your mom and dad did, they weren't being slave drivers or, or anything like that. They were trying to teach you hard work and what, what it is to... Right, and, and, the, and the value of working together, uh, the value of it's our house. If we want to build it, somebody has to help with the roof shingles. Somebody has to cart away the escombro. Somebody has to polish the furniture. Somebody has to dig the outhouse 
hole in the backyard, you know, and we would all work together. And so I, I think it is a, an immigrant value that too often is lost on the on the generation now. Um, you know, it taught me when I was at Harvard and and I was exhausted. You know, I said carrying chickens, my first job, carrying live chickens from, from trucks, that's exhausting. Studying in the library till midnight or one, that's not exhausting. So it teaches you to push yourself beyond what you think you can do. And I and I try to teach my kids the same values that I learned in Isleta. You know, in the Upper West Side of New York, I say to my kids, I had two boys, 19 and, and 16, uh, Aaron and Isaac. I say, your problem is um, mom and dad have been too successful. You guys are a little soft. And I see the same thing in their friends. You know, when they're they're hanging out in the mall in the summer, or they're not doing anything over the weekend, and I don't te- I, I don't allow my kids to do that. Uh, in the summer, for example, Isaac, my 16 year old, this summer that just ended, instead of just doing nothing as most of his friends did, he took an extra year of math and jumped ahead to calculus by junior year high school. And Aaron, when he when he was in high school, he took Spanish programs during the summer to jump ahead in Spanish and become bilingual, just like Isaac, uh, you know, to push himself in school. It was no idle time. And and, and people say, well, you're like a uh, tiger mom. And I said, no, I'm not a tiger mom. I'm a jaguar dad, a Mexican jaguar dad. You know, when they accomplish something, when you do it yourself, you get a sense of pride of, of what you accomplished, not what your dad did or you did it for your mom, but you did it for yourself and you're proud of it, and you know what it takes to get from A to B. Our parents worked very hard to give us what we did have, and I never went to bed hungry, but I knew that my father and my mother worked very hard, and as you said, it's all about family. What One of the things that I remember you telling me is that after that teacher took you under her wing and, uh, and you went to Harvard, that you said, I didn't even know where Harvard was. Right. No, that that's absolutely true, and I, I had... Great teachers at Isleta High School and South Loop School as well. In fact, Lori Ryan, I still keep in touch with her. She's my fourth grade teacher. And Dolores Vega, my third grade teacher who used to teach us to dance on Fridays and be proud of being Mexicano. But in high school, I had, you know, great teachers like Pearl Crouch, who was a journalism advisor, and Josefina Gutierrez-Kainard, you know, edit, uh, the advisor for the powwow. And these teachers were pushed me very hard to improve my writing. And they started, you know, Mrs. Crouch took me to San Francisco sophomore year when I had not yet been to the fancy neighborhoods of El Paso. She said, I'm going to take you to San Francisco to compete in writing competitions. And then the next year, she took me to Columbia University to compete in high school writing competitions. And she said, you can go anywhere you want, but you have to apply yourself. And Mrs. Crouch was muy dura. You know, she reminded me a lot of my abuelita. She pushed you. She, if she gave, you gave her a bad story or badly written or not, not conceptualized correctly, she would throw it back at you. You need to rewrite it. This is not good enough. And it's not because she was being mean. It really was because she had very high expectations. She knew you could do better. Of, of, exactly. She had high expectations and she knew you could do better. Let me ask you a question uh, because I was, I, somebody asked me about that before. Uh, is Mrs. Crouch uh, still with us? No, she she died 
a few years after I graduated from Isleta High School, and she died of cancer, actually. And uh, so she she knew I went to Harvard. She was very proud of me, and but she didn't get to see that I wrote my first book and all of that. But Mrs. Kiner, uh, who is was uh, an administrator in at the Isleta Independent School District, the principal at Del Valle for a long time, uh, I, I believe she's still there. I'm not sure. She, you know, I keep in touch with her and have been back to Del Valle. And I was just talking at El Dorado High School this morning. And on Monday, I'm going to talk at Isleta High School. So I, I try to come back and bring back what I learned from my, com- you know, from my community and, and being away from my community back to these places. Because these kids can do anything they want. That brings us up to a perfect segue to the book, one of the books that you read about the Martinez family. The fact that because a lot of people are, even though your last name is Martinez or Sanchez, you may not speak Spanish because right. your parents don't never taught you. Uh, I remember one young lady here uh, who was in our journalism department wrote a story called Si Quiero Pero No Puedo. I want to, but I can't. And she went to talking about speaking uh, Spanish. And because of that, though, there's a fine line there because sometimes well, people will say, well, you know what? Um, you're selling out. Because you're too American now, you're too white, Uh, you married an evangelical person, or you used to grow up Catholic, and now you don't believe in God. Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, this book, uh, From This Wicked Patch of Dust, which is based in Isleta, it came out in 2011, and and, uh, Kirkus Reviews chose it as one of the best books of the year. And it's about this Martinez family from Isleta and how they began with nothing. They began just trying to build their house. They don't have any money. They live very poor. But that, that trauma of poverty, you can call it, binds them together because they all have to work together to move up. But as they become more successful and as the kids go through high school and, and go to college, they also start pulling away from the traditional Catholic Mexican culture that they grew up right on the border. And so one of the kids, uh, for for example, Ismael, uh, who I also call Mayelo because that's his nickname, he uh, ends up in an Ivy League school just like I did, and he marries a a, a Jewish woman. And so he starts getting influenced. He doesn't convert, but he starts being influenced more in that direction. And then there's a uh, a daughter, um, Ismael's sister, Julia, who is very much into liberation theology, and she goes to Central America to for the left side of the left wing of the Catholic Church, but she comes back disaffected by liberation theology and Catholicism and eventually converts and becomes Muslim. And so she marries uh, an Iranian, and she creates a family, uh, Iranian mechs. And all of this is played out in the family. And the, the mother, uh, Pilar, is very traditional Mexicana, and she wants her kid not to stray from the church. So she's trying to keep a family together. And and my idea of the novel is not a protagonist as an individual, but a protagonist as a, as a group, as a family. And how we are we in as a family at a certain point. And then over time, we start fragmenting. And this group starts fragmenting. And we start adopting different politics. We might not adopt the politics of our fathers. We might be more liberal or more conservative, or we might adopt different religions, or we might end up in different geographies. And yet you're, you're trying to keep this familia together. And, and I thought of it as an allegory to what's happening to our country. 
you know, we are, how are we still a we when we have, you know, Republicans and Democrats, very conservative, very liberal, different religions, Jewish, you know, uh, religion, Muslim religion, Islam, Catholicism, Protestant. And so these kind of issues are being played out in our country. And I wanted to, to, to do this through the family. And so I, I think one of the things that you noticed the more you travel, is this is happening not just in, in Latino culture but in many other cultures, just simply because you are exposed to many different uh, religions and philosophies, more so simply just by through the Internet, for example. Now, Sergio, you said you wanted to share a little bit uh, from one of your books. You had something specific that you wanted to share about. Yeah, I, I'm going to read a, a little section that uh, this is Ismael, or they call him Mayelo. That's his nickname. And he's 18 years old. And he's um, he's uh, talking to his uh, abuelitos, Doña Josefina and Don Pedro. And it's 1982. And he's, it's just a four-minute piece. It's um, He's talking to them about some big news. And, and they live in El Segundo Barrio. And he lives uh, in Isleta, but he spends many weekends with them. Don't go. What are you going to do so far away from your familia? Doña Josefina said with a catch in her throat. It's the best school in the country, abuelita. I have to go. I want to go. In the small living room that faced the red brick tenements across the street, Don Pedro soaked his feet and dropped tablets of salt into the hot water. The old man wiggled his toes and grinned into the warm night air and gently closed his eyes. Doña Josefina heated a quesadilla oozing with monster cheese on the skillet on the stove, while Ismael slowly munched on a quesadilla quarter at the table. You don't know anybody in Boston. By the time you come back, your grandfather and I will be buried in the hot sand. Stay in El Paso and go to college here like Panchito. Abuelita, did you know that President Kennedy went to that school? Senators and presidents and very famous people had gone to Harvard. It cost more than $10,000 per year to go to this school. Jesus, Maria, y José, puros malditos ricachones. You'll be poor and alone if you go there. They sat down on her porch just outside the living room. In the darkness, Doña Josefina's face was momentarily lit when she struck a match to light her cigarette. She hunched over and stared at the concrete floor. The hump on her back was almost as high as her head. They're giving me una beca, abuelita. This school will change my life. What do I know about these things, my yellow? I'm just a poor Mexicana with nothing but this viejo in the living room with his stinky feet. What are your parents going to do without you? First Marcos, then Julieta, and now you. I know we don't count for anything, but I say don't go. I'll miss everybody, too. I'll be back for Christmas and for the summer, abuelita. It's the best school in the United States. You'll come back a different person. Worse, you won't want to come back after you see everything out there. Why would you want to come back to this horrible nada? Abuelita, that's not true. I'll be back. I'll call you every week. On the weekend when it's cheaper, I'll learn so much. Nobody at Isleta has ever been to Harvard. At least no one the teachers can remember. It's a great honor, mijo. We know that. I'm sure everyone in Isleta is proud of you. But this is who you are, she said for a moment, scanning the dark night and the empty street. A cricket chirped in the darkness. 
God help you when you go to this Harvard. You'll be so far away from us, from everything you know. You'll be alone. What if something happens to you? Who's going to help you? But you always wanted to be alone. You were always so independent, so stubborn. Like you. Ay, Dios mío, just remember your familia, Mayelo. Go, but come back. Doña Josefina said sadly, taking a quesadilla quarter from the plate on the ground. She handed the rest to Ismael. She stared at the screen door for a moment, her lazy eye ablaze in a red light as she inhaled her cigarette. Pedro, get up and wash the dishes. This hombre is unbelievable. He will sleep all day if I let him. Get up before I go in there with a broomstick and smash it on your head. Viejo apestoso. Oiga, señora, a raspy voice proclaimed on the other side of the screen door. Don't you know that you're talking to one of the kings of Harvard? Ahora verás, menso. They throw you in the trash at Harvard. That I know. Wow. And then it's so interesting. That's, that's Mayelo about to embark <laughs> on his journey. It, it, it's interesting how you talk about that story and you write that story and yet – Flipping it over, and, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with him also, and this Alfredo Corchado, who just wrote uh, Midnight in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, the fact that his mother was just the opposite. She didn't want him to go back to Mexico, and he wanted to go to Mexico because he felt like he had betrayed Mexico when he when they left, and he wanted to go back to Mexico and make a name for himself. And so that brings us to your other book, Our Lost Border, where you have essays on the narcotraficantes and how they've affected uh, both sides of the border. Yeah, absolutely. This, it's a, an anthology in which I'm one of the editors. Sarah Cortez is the other editor, and it came out in 2013. And uh, it's a collection of essays, an international collection with four uh, writers from Mexico, some great writers from Mexico, writing in the original Spanish and then also translated into the English, and then eight writers from the U.S., and I'm one of the writers, and we're writing in English. And it's all about how the border has changed, how families were affected by the violence along the border, how um, communities were torn apart, and how, you know, my life that I grew up going back into Juarez every week uh, for groceries, going for Sunday dinners, uh, just having a really binational you know, bicultural uh, life when I lived in in El Paso, that all of that was ended, uh, at least for a while. You know, when the violence peaked in 2010, starting around 2008 or so. And and so this happened all along the border, not just in El Paso, Juarez, but in San Diego and Tijuana and many other places. And people who were used to going back and forth, who had families on both sides. You know, and, and I have a story. I tell a story of my cousin Chavita um, in which, uh, you know, his life is really upended by 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 some of the uh, violence and near violence that happened in Juarez. And so I wrote about that. I wrote a, uh, an essay about him and, and Pepe, another cousin, who had lived, had actually lived in Juarez but had a green card, so he would go back and forth to El Paso all the time. A little bit about uh, Chavita, and this is an eight-minute piece. And this is from A World Between Two Worlds in, uh, in Our Lost Border. Just like, my, like his mother, my cousin Chavita, the young entrepreneur, was making it happen. He was also living in between two worlds, two cultures. He arrived at his job as an architect in El Paso, at 6.30 a.m. and worked until 4 p.m. 
then drove across an international bridge to Juarez to manage Café Miro with his wife until 10 p.m. Then he would do it again the next day, Chavita. The line that the bridges started getting longer after 9-11, so I had to purchase two trucks. I drive to a parking lot near the Juarez side of the bridge, park my truck, and hop on my bike. I bike across the bridge, flash my passport, bike into El Paso to another parking lot on the American side, throw my bike into the back of that truck, and drive to work. My life was divided in two, between El Paso and Juarez. So many people were doing exactly the same thing day in and day out. You got to know them. I also knew most of the federal guys at the bridge, by first name, and they knew me too. It was crazy, but it worked. Chavita imagined bigger and better things, and he had a knack with people and for convincing them to support his dreams. He had gained experience organizing events at his first bar. Café Miro was an even bigger success, although he was overworked and literally on the move all the time. He remembered the Guadalajara mega-events that had originally prompted him to organize his first dance party years ago, and he expanded again, first at Cartablanca Park and then at the Hipodromo Park in Juarez. He and a partner organized a music festival that attracted dozens of bands. The first year, 2,500 people attended their arts festival. Chavita and his partner published a music magazine and a website to promote their festival, to feature their bands, and to allow fans to submit favorite photos and clips. Chavita was an avid user of Facebook and understood the power of social media. The second year, 4,500 people showed up, and not only was their festival filled with great live music, but also art exhibits, high-end coffee, and great beer. Chavita. You wouldn't imagine how much time we spent selecting the right coffee. We wanted things to be high-class, high-end. Everything had to be just right. We wanted young people to have fun, to come together for music, for dancing, for the arts. People began waiting for our festivals to happen. The third year, 7,500 people danced the night away at another of Chavita's events. No obstacle was too big to stop him for too long. Bad luck would not get in his way. One day, he jumped in his Ford Explorer to buy medicines at a pharmacy. Suddenly a car with tinted windows blocked his way at an intersection, and several men in masks jumped out and pointed 9 millimeter guns at his head. One simply said, Nomás dame la llave y vete. Just give me the key and go now. Chavita walked away from his truck and survived. He loved Juarez. Although the incident spooked him, he never thought of leaving the city. In 2009, on the fourth anniversary of their festival, the drug war violence broadened and deepened, but still 5,000 people demanded rock music for a few nights in Juarez. A few phone calls portended the beginning of the end. Strangers asked to talk to the owners of the music festival, and when they got Chavita on the phone, they demanded a percentage of the profits for security services. These strangers were clueless as to how much money the festival made each year. They did not know or care who Chavita was, and they laughed when he protested about the years of work and sacrifice to get to this point. For a few days, Chavita ignored these calls. 
One day, as he sat drinking coffee at Café Miro, an older man wearing a cheap dark suit approached the manager, talked to him in low and insistent growls, and brazenly began to inspect the place. Chavita had never seen this man in his life. The older man handed the manager a letter and told him to deliver it to the owner. To his great credit, the manager did not point to Chavita and say, He's right there, the guy with the laptop. The letter went into detail about the offer of security services and what would happen to the owners if they did not comply. It was nasty stuff. Chavita called the phone number in the letter, and this was more or less what they said. We know where you live. We know where you bank. We know what cars you drive. We know about the bar, and we know about the festivals. This is what your payment will be every week. If you don't have a liquor license, or if you, don't, if you need a permit for anything, or if you have problems with inspectors, we'll get you the licenses and the permits. We'll solve the problems with inspectors. We are the government now. We'll provide you with drugs to sell at your events. This is how much you will sell. As Chavita said, it was very businesslike in a certain way, and in another way it was very graphic about what would happen to him and his family and his partner and his partner's family if they did not comply. <clears throat> Two days after that call, Chavita closed down Café Miro, dismissed all his employees, and ripped the place apart for anything valuable he could take with him or store in a warehouse. In those same two days, he packed everything he could from his home and abandoned Juarez for El Paso, Chavita. It's not about you anymore. It's about your family. I have two kids, four and eight years old. I had to leave. In a way, I walked away just in time before anything horrible happened to me. I don't hate Juarez. On the contrary, but if anything worse had happened to me, if anything had happened to my family, I would probably think differently. I just believe Juarez has so much potential, and I would like to go back. You know, it's it's, it's incredible what you you've talked about the the fact that uh, you know. First of all, you started off the years ago when you were here talking about your success story and going to Harvard, and it's sad how this violence has progressed and, and crossed over. And uh, Dennis and I have a former colleague who moved to New York City. And, um, you know, everybody was saying, oh, New York City, that's where, you know, murder capital of the world and they kill everybody over there. And when she showed up over there, they told her, oh, you're from El Paso Juarez. That's where they kill people. So it was just it was just the opposite. And these books that, that you just read from, of course, you know, you just whet everybody's appetite. So... Where can they get these books that he'll do? You have a website they can buy them from? Do they go to Amazon.com or what's the easiest way? Well, I, I would hope that you would support local bookstores like the East Side Barnes and Noble the, on the at the new uh, at the new shopping center, the Fountains, and also at the uh, I just read at the Sunland Park Barnes and Noble. I think it'd be great if you buy your books from them, and if they don't have them, you just tell them to order them, and they will they'll bring them and call you when they have it ready. I also have my own website, uh, SergioTroncoso.com. And so from my website, you can link to, to different bookstores, including Amazon, to buy my books. 
uh, Our Lost Border, essays on life amid the narco violence or From This Wicked Patch of Dust, the novel about Isleta, and then the book of essays, Crossing Borders, personal essays. And also, I actually love the bookery in Socorro, um, not far from... Uh, the Socorro Mission. Uh, Margaret has been a great friend of mine for many years, Margaret Barber. So if you buy books from her, that'll make me happy too. Well, uh, Sergio, thank you very much for being with us here today. You've made us very happy by sharing with us, but also uh, very sad because of what you read is very true. But as you mentioned earlier, together as a family, and as President Lincoln said, a house divided can't fall. And I'll do it together. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Louis, for having me on your program. Perspectives is taped and produced at the KTP Studios, University of Texas at El Paso Communication Building. Our thanks to our engineer and producer, Dennis Wu. You've been tuned to Perspectives. I'm Louis Science. Mm-hmm.